I'm Alexander Hefner, your host on The Open Mind. I'm delighted to welcome to the podcast today Carlton Larson. He's professor of constitutional law and legal history at UC Davis and the author of The Trials of Allegiance and On Treason, A Citizen's Guide to the Law. Welcome, Professor. Thanks for having me. Uh, Professor, do you think this period of the Trump presidency and administration uh, can be an aberration at this point in terms of some of the very clear violations of constitutional law, procedure, norms? Uh, Or do you think that uh, given the instinct of his Republican allies to comply with and further overturn the election to cast doubt on legal you know, lawful and free elections that the, the great number of Republicans who were committed and who remain committed to overturning free and fair elections makes you believe that the Trump presidency was not an aberration and that is going to be the future of the Republican Party, if not America? Well, that's a very good question, and it's, I think, an exceptionally important question. If you had asked me this um, two months ago, I think I would have said that Trump is is distinctive, you know, that his unique combination of pathologies uh, is really unlike almost anybody else one could imagine uh, in the White House. Uh, and when you think of other Republican presidential contenders for the presidency, they all have their flaws, but certainly nothing Uh, as gigantic as his. And so I I would have thought that many of these problems would go away um, once Trump had left office. But now that we've seen so many people sign on to truly frivolous uh, and ridiculous claims um, about election fraud, it is really quite disturbing. Now, it may be still still be the case that when Trump passes from the scene, uh, people come a little bit more to their senses. Uh, but I think it really remains to be seen. It's, it's an open question and potentially a very frightening one uh, if this sort of disregard for basic facts persists as a major uh, element of one side of our politics. We're going to be in a lot of trouble going forward. What do you think will be the ramifications of the 6-3 conservative Republican appointed majority on the Supreme Court? They did not accept any of the frivolous allegations or accusations about fraud rejected hearing Texas and its suit against four other states, uh, which really amounted to a kind of cold civil war or act of treason in its own right. First, let me ask you this. Do you, would you describe the Texas attorney general in, in, the conduct on behalf of the state of Texas as treasonous? No, it's not treasonous because, you know, it's, um, it's, I would say it's, it's frivolous and it undermines American democracy, but not everything that is frivolous or that undermines American democracy is uh, necessarily treasonous. I think it was filed in, in enormous bad faith. Uh, you know, the idea that the Supreme court would hear a case like this was patently ridiculous to anybody who knew anything about the Supreme Court. And it's interesting that Texas's own Solicitor General, who represents the state in front of the Supreme Court, you know, didn't sign the brief on behalf of the state of Texas. He knew the case was garbage, as did every other uh, Supreme Court practitioner. So this was really a political stunt 
uh, more than any type of credible legal maneuver. It was a stunt, but the tactic of employing a malicious argument that has meritless, um, factually baseless, and in, in a sense, invading the electoral processes of other states which have been independent since the ratification of the constitution it if it's not a cold civil war or if it's not treason it it's something that is um new what is not new though is a state protesting the federal government what is rather new although it's been part of some of the Affordable Care Act jurisprudence is one state filing a suit against another state. And I, and I just want you to reflect on that idea because I don't think that idea is going away. I would be hesitant to you know, use the term treason or even treasonous in, in sort of a broadly capacious way that would bring into its scope you know, anyone challenging the federal government or anybody filing a frivolous lawsuit. Um, the problem is there's this, this whole range of behavior, and I think Trump really highlighted this, um, where you do things that aren't technically treason as a, as a criminal matter, but which so fundamentally violate basic norms as they've been understood uh, for a very long time. And we don't have a very good term to describe that sort of behavior. Um, and so people inevitably end up reaching for terms like um, treason or uh, betrayal or coup or sedition or things like that. Um, but in some ways, it, it, I think you're right in that it is something new. Um, the simple refusal to recognize the results of an election, right? even in the Confederacy, they recognized Abraham Lincoln had won. Right? That's why they left. They didn't go pretending that somebody else was the president. Um, and so I do think that there is something new to this. And, and a big part of this is social media. Um, which allows really terrible ideas to spread very, very quickly, which just wasn't the case. Um, really, I think even until the invention of the iPhone, where you can now get a stream of idiotic things um, direct to your, your hands anywhere in the world. Uh, and that has made this problem so much worse. It's much, much harder to counter really dumb ideas when they come via social media than when you're, say, limited to three uh, major broadcast networks. What is the history of states suing other states? Uh, if you look at the large swath of constitutional history. It's a pretty narrow category of disputes. Mostly it tends to revolve around things like boundary disputes. Um, or Most recently, most of the cases have been about allocation of water rights um, under things like the Colorado River Compact. Um, the most recent case they just decided um, a few days, two, two days ago, I think on, on Monday, um, was a water dispute between New Mexico and Texas. And these, these tend to be pretty technical. Usually what happens is the court refers them to what's called a special master. And that person actually does the hard work of digging into the facts and, and making conclusions and recommendations, which the court usually accepts. So the original jurisdiction side of the court's docket, for the most part, is a pretty dry docket. I mean, I can't really think of any truly significant case that was filed as part of that uh, jurisdiction. But do you think that may change? And can you give a little context about uh, what I what I recall to be disputes among states in the Affordable Care Act jurisprudence? Yeah, so there is a um, a California versus Texas case. So they do they can occasionally come up, uh, but I do think the court rejecting this Texas case 
uh, unanimously is pretty much a very clear signal from the court that they have absolutely no interest in having this become a regular form uh, for dispute resolution among the states. Um, if you did that, you could essentially have states suing each other over anything, really. Uh, and the court would be obliged to take those and consider them uh, as an original matter. And the court just doesn't like doing that, um, probably because it really likes to have a fully developed factual record um, brought in lower courts. So I don't anticipate that this type of thing um, will, will be going forward. Now, had the court taken this, this Texas case, then yes, I think it would really would open the floodgates. Uh, but I don't think any of the justices have, have any interest uh, in doing that. There is the notion that they rejected the conservative 6-3 majority rejected this case unanimously because they would prefer to preserve and even maybe enhance their credibility as they intend to make other formulations and dictates over the coming year and years, specifically on hot-button social issues, uh, do you view their non-involvement in this dispute as also a way to try to legitimize their authority ahead of controversial decisions in the coming weeks and months that are inconsistent and sometimes wildly inconsistent with public opinion? Well, I don't know if they did it specifically for that reason, but that's clearly one result of what they did. Uh, And in some ways, you you know, they that majority had all this kind of criticism going in um, based on the Trump appointees, based on what happened with uh, Merrick Garland, what happened with the, the Ruth Ginsburg seat, uh, that Texas and Trump, they essentially gave the court the easiest possible way um, to cloak themselves in legitimacy and to make them look neutral and nonpartisan by offering up truly frivolous and worthless cases that the court could just swat away. Uh, and at the same time, look like you know, they, they don't have particular partisan motives. Uh, so I think that in some ways that gave the court um, a lot of cover potentially for things that they do care more about. Uh, and I don't think any of the justices particularly cared about Donald Trump having another four years. My guess is that all of them probably find him personally distasteful. Uh, but they do care about dismantling the administrative state. They care about, um, you know, reigning in various other types of federal power. And I think that's, that's where the action is going to be going forward. What do you anticipate to be the, the first actions of the new court? Well, I think we're starting to see it already with respect to religion. I think we're going to see a, a much broader interpretation of, uh, of religious freedom in ways that, that, that allows people to escape uh, from um, laws that would otherwise potentially burden uh, religious exercise. I think we're going to see an aggressive promotion of uh, free exercise jurisprudence. Um, and then I think that the next thing we'll see is probably a, um, a very close look at administrative agencies. Uh, this has been a, a pet project of, of the right and people like Leonard Leo and Don McGann who helped pick these Trump justices uh, for a long time uh, so that, um, you know, the Biden administration tries to do aggressive um, regulation uh, there's a very good chance that that will be uh, struck down by the Supreme Court on the grounds that uh, it has to be done by Congress and not by agencies. So you're saying religious freedom, uh, and I would imagine you're talking about the Fulton case in particular, but cases like that moving forward. Exactly, yeah. 
with respect to cases outside of the religious freedom bucket, uh, even though that I, I'm sure could be applied to reproductive rights, abortion, and any number of issues, but how quickly do you think the reversals of the, the Warren Court, um, how quickly do you think those reversals will accelerate? Um, I wouldn't necessarily expect anything dramatically quickly. Uh, I mean, the cases have to percolate up through the lower courts. You have to have the court grant them and then they're argued. And there's still a tendency, I think, for many of the justices, even on the conservative side, um, to move incrementally if you can, to sort of build up a a body of law that then supports you if you want to make bolder moves in the future. So uh, I think it's it's an open question. It also depends on the issue, to what extent the justices really care about that particular issue. So let me give you a few examples. Yeah, sure. We're talking about Roe v. Wade. We're talking about uh, Gratz and Grutter v. Bollinger, uh, affirmative action and abortion. So during the 90s and, and the 2000s, I would say that those were probably the two most lightning rod issues in which the court weighed in. So on those two issues, what would you expect to be the immediate or incremental trajectory of changes of, of law and norm in this country? So it's affirmative action. I think there's a very good chance um, that the court would hold um, that race-based affirmative action is, is unconstitutional. Uh, there's a case coming up uh, from from Harvard, um, raising that issue now. It's not quite a constitutional issue because Harvard is a private actor, but the, some of the same issues apply under the Civil Rights Act. And so it wouldn't surprise me at all if we saw the court um, just flat out say, um, you know, you can't consider race as part of an affirmative action program. On the other hand, there was the case from 2003 in, in Grutter where the court suggested that affirmative action would come to an end uh, in 2028. And so one thing the court could just do is say, well, that's really where it's going to end. And so there's now, you know, say an eight-year timeline going forward uh, and let that be the decision and say they're not changing the law at all, that they're simply following uh, the 2003 decision. So something like that could certainly be possible. Uh, with respect to abortion, it's, it's hard to know. I mean, clearly they're going to uphold far more restrictions than they did um, when Justice Kennedy was on the court or when Justice Ginsburg was on the court. Uh, will they go all the way out to an outright reversal of Roe? I, I don't know. I mean, I'm sure there are, you know, Justice Thomas would do that. Justice Alito, I think, would do that. Um, probably Justice Barrett. I don't know for sure. Probably Justice Gorsuch. Um, Justice Kavanaugh, I don't know. Um, that remains to be seen. And I'm not totally sure about Roberts either. Are there any issues I haven't mentioned where you expect there to be new traction in the next year? Well, one, one of the biggest areas, actually, I think, is gun control. Um, the Supreme Court recognized an individual right to uh, bear arms under the federal constitution in 2008 and then applied that to states in 2010. Uh, but it hasn't decided a gun case since then. Uh, and so the lower courts have tended, for the most part, to uphold uh, restrictions on gun rights. Uh, that may well change um, with the change in the court. Uh, I think there's, there's going to be a solid majority for stronger protection uh, of gun rights you know, that doesn't depend on uh, Chief Justice Roberts uh, to make that majority. So I expect we will see uh, gun cases being one of the big areas uh, of change.
So as a final line of discussion, the the United States Senate may be in Republican control, it may be in Democratic control. If there had been a Democratic sweep, there may have been a push for a mandate to reform the court, specifically to expand the pool of justices from nine to a larger number. And it does seem as though that will be the most pragmatic rather than constitutional amendments to reasserting control if you are a part of the majority of this country, because we live in a, a minoritarian rule, according to this to the Supreme Court. Uh, 6-3 on the court does not fashion into any support for the public um, or any support for what you would ordinarily consider Republican or Democratic Republican tendencies. So that that is unsustainable in the in the long run. Uh, I, I suggest you would agree. And if it is unsustainable, what do you think would be the most effective way for the majority of the country to move forward? Well, I do think there is a, a non-trivial argument uh, for expanding the court. Uh, I, I don't see that happening anytime soon, even if Democrats win the Georgia Senate races. We already had at least one Democrat, George, uh, Joe Manchin, say he wouldn't support court expansion. And I think there are uh, probably several other Democratic senators who would be a very tough sell on that point as well. So uh, unfortunately, I just don't see that as a realistic path forward, um, at least until there's a much larger Democratic majority in the Senate. And that too, of course, is constrained uh, by the basic politics of uh, the Senate and having two senators per state, which doesn't translate into a majoritarian uh, Senate. Um, so it may be the case that this is just something that people have to ride out. Um, and of course, things can change. I mean, one of the really pe peculiar things about our Supreme Court is that, you know, our, our entire constitutional law can change on, you know, one justice having a heart attack. Uh, so, yeah. And I've asserted for a while that that's not the way to operate <laughs> democracy or any form of government for that matter. I mean, the arbitrariness of a bleeding heart uh, or a heart attack, um, you know, that, that, that there are contingencies um, and, and then there are just irrationalities. And, you know, it, the number nine and the idea of lifetime appointments without any consideration of anything else seems to be rather unstable. Yeah, well, I think one of the big problems here is, is the combination of lifetime tenure plus just the enormous power wielded by the justices. No other nation does it quite like this. Uh, and I've long been a supporter of having, uh, you know, staggered terms, 18 years, uh, seats come up every two years, uh, guaranteeing every president two appointments, guaranteeing that you could uh, not have people there for 30 years, and most importantly, not having them strategically timing their retirements, as was the case with Justice Kennedy, um, or just sort of inadvertently dying, uh, you know, four months too soon, uh, as was the case with Justice Ginsburg. I mean, major changes uh, in government shouldn't turn on things that are so truly um, arbitrary and random. 
arbitrary and random and, and just, you know, I, I think with respect to the pandemic, there was this notion that we had to learn to live with it. And in fact, President-elect Biden has said, well, we, we had to learn to die with it, right? And, and I just wonder, and I think this is the most salient question for everybody, how extreme in the minoritarian sense of the word, how extreme does the minoritarian rule have to get to warrant um, systemic changes, which you and I would both acknowledge can be made through a simple majority in the U.S. Senate? Um, Well, I think that's probably ultimately a political question up to, you know, each senator, and they're going to have to hear from their constituents about this. I mean, if you think about Franklin Roosevelt in 1937, he was unable to get this done coming off one of the most biggest electoral victories in history. Uh, For a long time, Democrats haven't really cared about the Supreme Court um, in the way that Republicans have. Uh, And so uh, I think unless people see this as a really big issue, and frankly, if Democrats need to run on it, which they didn't, you know, in, in 2020, Biden tried to avoid the question as much as possible. Very few senators openly said uh, they were for it. Um, And ideally, if you're going to make a change like that, you'd like to have some uh, electoral mandate uh, to do so. There would have to be perhaps treasonous violations of American integrity. For example, had there been a court that was not independent and that was allies of Trump and refused to um, accept the fair results of four states or the majority of the country, or in this case, the Electoral College as well, that that would be an extreme violation of our sovereignty, of our rights, of our due process, and that would lead to a movement for judicial reform. And I, and I, and I gather you might point to the fact that, you know, Marbury v. Madison is not in the constitution. It's an interpretation of the constitution. Uh, it's an understanding of the Supreme Court's supremacy, basically. And, um, you know, there, there could be one day a president who came along and said the Supreme Court won't grant this case or, you know, decide to reject these four states. Well, I don't care. I still won this election. And so one wonders if it has to get to that point before there is court reform. <laughs> it, it, you know, it, it might. Um, hopefully, I, I don't think uh, we're likely to see courts do that. I mean, I really hope not. Um, so far, I mean, some of the strongest statements uh, against the Trump campaign have come from Trump-appointed judges, and that gives one at least some hope, uh, you know, that, that these people are not uh, simply stooges. Uh, and, you know, it's, it is kind of interesting that, you know, Trump didn't seem to care a whole lot about who the judges were. Um, he didn't seem to stack them a lot with, you know, his personal lawyers or, or things like that. Um, they tend to be people outside of, of the Trump orbit. Uh, and I think that's at least helpful uh, going forward. Uh, if you did see a judiciary full of, you know, buddies and cronies of the president, then um, you'd have a very, very serious problem. As a final question, by your definition in the book, are there offenses that Trump committed in office that are treasonous? 
Uh, I don't see anything that rises to um, the level of actual criminal treason as defined in the Constitution. Uh, I see a lot of bad behavior, a lot of inappropriate behavior, a lot of things that could very fairly be described as uh, a betrayal of America, uh, but nothing that it actually constitutes criminal treason. Where is that line drawn in terms of betraying America and committing treason against America? Uh, so Article 3 says treason is limited to levying war against the United States or adhering to their enemies, giving them aid and comfort. Um, so for levying war, he'd essentially be having to use military force to try to overthrow the government. Uh, and for adhering to enemies, he would need to be um, aiding a foreign nation or group with whom we are in a state of open war. Uh, and that excludes nations like Russia or China or Turkey or Syria or other nations with whom we are not. Um, in a state of open war. So even if he's helping those nations um, and putting their interests ahead of America's, it still wouldn't actually constitute criminal treason. When Frank Bowman joined me on the program, I asked him the same question and I pointed out that cyber espionage and cyber crimes are war. And based on the fact that we read the constitution in light of contemporary events and even strict constructionists um, would, and textualists would have to except there are computers now, there were not computers when the Constitution was ratified. In light of that fact, I don't understand how you, can, how you read that clause that you just read and ignore what have been the accusations, even if they haven't been fully proven, that Trump collaborated with foreign actors in the hacking of the DNC in 2016. And to me, cyber war is war. So why are we still reading that clause about treason as if it was the 18th century? Well, because cyber war, is, the war here is really a metaphor in the same way one might talk about, you know, the war on drugs or the war on poverty. And the way to think about these cyber offenses is what is the analog equivalent of what you did. So certainly there are things you could do um, that are equivalent to an act of war. So if you, you know, cyber attacked um, the Pentagon and caused the place to blow up, or you cyber attacked our nuclear weapons so that they detonated, sure, that would be, um, I think that would create a state of open war between us and the country that did it. Um, but if what they did was, you know, say, go on Facebook and uh, promote uh, various candidates, well, that's the analog equivalent of that is essentially you know, standing out in the street with being a foreign spy and handing out propaganda, or if the claims that they hack the DNC, the analog to that really is, you know, breaking into the DNC offices in the Watergate. Um, but that's just an ordinary burglary. Russians are accused once again of hacking U.S. entities, including departments of uh, U.S. administration. But if they were to attack the Commerce Department, certainly if they were to attack the Department of Energy, you could make the argument that it is treason if it is proven that anyone af affiliated with the United States or any Americans assisted Russia in pulling off such an attack. Um, potentially, I mean, it would depend what the attack um, looked like, because you could argue that that was an act of levying war from within um, on the part of the person who did it. Um, but the part of the problem with the enemy's provision is that, you know, na nations mess with each other a lot in this way, in these ways, without actually creating states of 
open war. So um, you'd have to have some type of recognition from the, the federal government that we are in fact in a state of open war with this country and that any aid to that country now is treason. Because uh, people need to know, you know, be on notice, you know, which countries are off limits and which ones are okay to interact with. Carlton Larson, professor of constitutional law at UC Davis. Thank you so much for your insight today. Thank you. Happy to be here.